Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It's our passage for today. The title of our sermon today is God's Design of Man and Woman. God's Design of Man and Woman. And as you turn to Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read a passage from God's Word that we're going to be studying today. So if you're able, stand. Everybody turn to that passage. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we find these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. You may be seated. We began a few weeks ago working our way through Genesis chapter 2. And if you'll recall, I told you that Genesis chapter 1 is a zoomed out focus um, or account of creation where the whole world is the focus and then we get to Genesis chapter 2 really beginning in verse 4 we zoom in and we get a zoomed in focus on creation where the focus is really um, humanity so chapter 1 kind of zoomed out a whole world is the focus chapter 2 we're zooming in on the creation of humanity we've already learned in chapter 1 that humans both female and male were created in the image of God. Male and female, God created them, and he made them in his image. And we also learned that both male and female are given the responsibility to multiply image bearers of God on the earth and to exercise dominion over the earth. It's kind of a summary of what we learned about God's creation of humanity in chapter 1. Now when we move into chapter 2, we focus in on the detail of God's creation of humanity, and we get a very clear picture of God's original design of his image bearers. Now, a few weeks ago, we studied uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, and since it's been a few weeks, just wanted to quickly remind us of what we learned there. In uh, the first half of chapter 2, we learned that God's design of humanity provides us with life rather than death, with life rather than death. More specifically, we learned that God's design of humanity means that we are to live in life-giving relationship with him, life-sustaining dependence on, on him, and life-prolonging obedience to him. We just see this theme of life. Now today, as we turn our attention to the second half of chapter 2, we're going to learn more about God's design of humanity. Um, in the first half, just to remind us, in the first half of chapter 2, we see God creating the man. We see him creating man out of the dust of the earth. Um, and, and then, as we move into the second half of chapter 2, we have the creation of woman, of the female. And what we see is that God has a unique design for man and woman in which 
both, hear this, both are equally made in his image and yet are very much distinct from one another. Remember from our first study, and this is important from our study of the the first half of chapter 2, that God's design is a design which gives life. I want you to keep that in your mind even as we go into the second half of chapter 2. All that we see in God's original design is is a design which promotes life. It's a good design. It's a design characterized by the absence of death. And even God clearly warns them in verse 17 against the one action that would bring death into his good world, which was full of life. God desires and works for the flourishing of human society, which means I think we can say this about verses 18 through 25, which we just read a moment ago. God's design, church family, God's design of man and woman provides an essential distinction for the flourishing of human society we think about the way that god has designed men and women male and female there is an essential distinction that is there in his creation between male and female which is for the flourishing the good the life of humanity in this world in which we live You say it this way, God has designed humanity in such a way that the flourishing of human society, of life, depends at least in part upon the distinction which exists between men and women. Men and women are different. If you didn't know that, you should know that. Men and women are different. God designed men and women to be different. And these differences, these distinctions, which were a part of God's original creation, which, remember, at the end of chapter 1, he described as very good, promote the flourishing of human society. Which means that any attempt, very important, any attempt to eliminate this essential distinction will prove detrimental to human society put it simply it will not be good it is not good when humans try to eliminate the distinction which god has created and infused into humanity this distinction between male and female i want you to know that god's design is not optional we can try to eliminate this distinction and humans do try to eliminate this distinction But this distinction in God's word is not optional. His design is reality. When we can choose to reject what is reality and invent our own, what I'm going to call fake reality, but then we'll have to suffer the consequences which always come when we try to live outside of God's original design for his creation. We see evidence all around us of the confusion and brokenness which comes when we as humans choose to reject God's design. From feminism, which says that there are no real differences between men and women, to transgenderism, which says that a person can move between the genders as though the differences are merely a choice rooted in one's feelings, And from a breakdown of biblical gender roles and heterosexual marriages to homosexual practices which completely ignore God's design of human sexuality and marriage, one thing is clear, we are no longer living in the Garden of Eden. We are no longer living in the world that we find described in Genesis chapter 2. And what this means 
is that if we seek as God's people to learn and to live out God's design for men and women, we will be choosing to walk a path which goes against the flow of the culture and the society in which we live. Which means, church, that we better love God more than we love being accepted by our peers. We better love God's word more than we love the words of praise from man. And we better love truth more than we love the feeling-oriented pop culture which surrounds us. In other words, we better buckle up. You know what I mean? So somebody says, all right, you better buckle up. I mean, you better get ready because the road's going to be a little rough. We better get ready if we're going to order our lives according to God's design of man and woman. Now, listen, I'm not trying to scare you. That's not my point in saying this warning. I'm not trying to scare you. What I, what I want to do is just help you count the cost before you build. God's way has never, ever been the popular way since sin entered the world. But God's way has always been the best way. And it always will be the best way. Now, I'll tell you the rest of my conversation with my daughter Letty Ann this morning. Uh, when, I, when she said it's church day today, and I said, yeah, it is, and we talked about being excited about coming. Uh, she said, do you know what you're going to preach? And uh, I, said, I said, yeah, in fact, I, I do. Thank the Lord I do know, since this is happening in a couple of hours, I do know what I'm going to preach. And, uh, and, and I guess she thinks that I'm getting a little older and maybe uh, losing my mind a little bit. Um, maybe a result of being sick, it does kind of have that effect on your mind. Um, and uh, so she followed up the question of whether or not I know what I'm going to preach with this. Well, did you write it down? <laughs> That's what she asked me. And I said, in fact, I, I did write it down. Um, and, and so... Uh, and then, and then we, we talked about that a little bit more, and, and she asked me what I was going to preach about. I said, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about the difference between men and women and what God's Word says about that. I said, and actually, we're going to talk about this for a couple of weeks. I said, because I, I really feel led to go a little more slowly through this passage, and, and I wasn't planning on doing that to begin with, but, but there's so much I feel like we need to talk about. And she said, she said, yeah, that would probably be good. Because if you did it all in one day, it would just be too long. And I, I, said, I, I said, I agree with you. I said, that's exactly why we're going to take two weeks. Um, and I really, as you see, we're going to take three weeks in this passage. But this sermon today is really a, a two-part sermon. And I'm, I'm really just cutting it in half. And so you'll see when we get to the end, we're just going to kind of stop. And then we're going to pick up next week uh, where we leave off today. So two-part message. I want to share with you today uh, two truths regarding the essential distinction we see in God's design of man and woman, which lead to human flourishing. Number one, God designed human society to be built upon the clear necessity of both man and woman. The, the key word there is necessity. God's design of human society, the way he's designed this, is that, um, that society would be built upon the clear necessity of both man and woman. Again, that means it's not optional. We, we need, human society needs men and women and the differences that exist between us. 
When we get to verse 18, we have all of God's creation complete, except there's no woman. We get to, to verse 18, the end of verse 17, everything is complete except there is no woman. God created the man from the dust of the earth in verse 7 and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the text says. And then, and then we saw a few weeks ago that God gives the man a place to live, a job to do, food to eat, and a command to obey. I mean, everything seems perfect. It seems like God is finished. But then we find these words in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. What an incredible statement. And for those who may have grown up in church and maybe have read this story many times, it's easy for us just to kind of read through these narrative accounts. Quickly, we've already known, but just think about it. God is he's looking at what he has done, and he said, it's not good. And it doesn't mean that God had made a mistake. It just means he wasn't finished yet. There was something missing. All throughout God's creation in chapter 1, we saw this refrain, and God said that it was good. And God said that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. We see that over and over. And so it should stand out in our minds when we see that at some point on day six, God looked and said, it's not good. Well, what was not good? Well, it was not good that the man should be alone. Let's think about that for just a moment. Let's ask this question. Was the man alone? Was the man alone? Well, in one sense, the answer is no. The man wasn't alone. I mean, think about it. The, the man had the lights in the sky above him that God had made. He had the plants covering the ground. He had the birds of the air. He had the fish of the sea. He even had all the animals around him. Not only did he have all of creation, he had God. He had God. And so in one sense, Adam was not alone. And yet God says it's not good because the man is alone. So what in the world does God mean? Well, I think it's clear from the context that God meant that Adam was by himself when it came to image bearers of God. We've got to think back to chapter 1 for a minute. When it came to image bearers of God who could join him in the work of multiplying image bearers and subduing the rest of creation. In other words, Adam was by himself in the work that God had given him to do. And in fact, it was impossible for him to do this work by himself, multiplying and subduing the earth. Too, too big of a task. And, and he, could, he couldn't do all of that by himself. He wasn't created to do all of that by himself. And go, so God says, listen, this isn't good giving him a job to do, giving him a way to glorify me in this world, but he can't do it alone. And so God says that he's going to make a helper fit for him. Now we're going to come back to that phrase, helper fit for him, um, uh, a little bit later, but I want you to go on to verse 19. Now notice that so far, notice who's doing the action, who's doing the movement here. It is God who recognizes that it's not good for man to be alone. Adam is not sitting around complaining about the creation. He's not sitting around and go, man, God, you messed up. Something's wrong with this. He's not. God's the one who recognizes that it's not good. 
God is the one stating that something is missing, but God wants Adam to realize that something is missing so that Adam will recognize and appreciate the missing piece when God provides it for him. So look at verse 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, like I said a few moments ago, uh, there's just so much to, to talk about here. First, we see that God's sovereignty over all that is happening. And I kind of already mentioned that. Who's doing everything here? It's God. He is sovereign over all this happening. God makes the animals. God has made the man. God brings the animals to the man. The animals do exactly what God wants them to do. He's not running around with a lasso trying to get them. They just do. They, 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 they serve the beck and call of their creator. And as we see the exercise of dominion by the man in naming the animals, that is an action that the man takes here. We're reminded that God is the one who gave the man the right and the responsibility to exercise this type of authority over the creation that God has made. And Adam is, um, is able to perform this task because God has created him in such a way that he's able. God's given him the ability, not just the right and the responsibility, but also the, the ability, the mental ability to be able to name these animals. So we see God's sovereignty over all this happening. Second, we see the man in a position of authority over the animals. We see him in a position of authority. I think that's important. Naming someone or naming something is a sign of authority. Think about it. Who does the naming in a family? The parents or the children? Well, the parents name the children. The children don't name the parents. Why? Because the parents are in authority over the children. Naming someone or something is a sign of authority. And so the man is exercising his God-given authority here. Third, we see the harmony which existed between animals and the man. The animals come before Adam, but none of them try to eat Adam. Neither do they try to eat one another. Why? Because there was perfect harmony in the garden. Sin hadn't yet entered into the world. There was no death. But I think the main thing we see here, based on the way that the passage is writ written, and what's highlighted, what's repeated, the main thing we see here is actually what Adam did at sea. There's no helper fit for him. That's the main point here. This is the second time we've seen this phrase, a helper fit for him. Out of all the animals God made, not one of them could help Adam multiply humanity or subdue creation. Not one of them was a helper fit for him. And according to God, this is not good. And so God does what he said he was going to do. He makes a helper fit for the woman. And what was this helper, uh, excuse me, a helper fit for the man? And what was this helper who was fit for the man. It's not another animal. It's another human. But it wasn't another human man. It was a human woman. Look at verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Again, just notice God is the one who's doing everything here. Uh, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So God does a little surgery on the man. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. The man didn't make it. The man's in a deep sleep. All right, he's under divine anesthesia at this point. Um, and, and so God makes the woman from the man's rib 
and God brings her to the man, the text says, and then the man said, this at last. Listen, that's, that's, that, that's, that's a, 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 a statement of celebration there. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God saw that Adam needed a helper fit for him, and so God made a woman, and he made the woman from the man. Now, remember what happened after Adam saw all of the animals. Remember what happened? He recognized that none of them could be a helper fit for him. There was not found one who could be a helper fit for him. That's what he recognized when he saw all of the animals. But then I want you to notice the change in Adam's response when he sees the woman. He immediately sees that unlike the animals who were different than him, here is a living creature who is, what does Adam say, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He doesn't say that about the animals. Here was what he needed. Here was a helper fit for him. And now God is ready to describe all of his creation as very good. I just want you to notice the necessity, the necessity of both man and woman. Males are necessary for there to be human flourishing and life in the world that God has made. And females are necessary for there to be human flourishing and life in the world that God has made. Both males and females are necessary for God's creation to be as God said, very good. And so, in light of that, it pains me, it troubles me, when I think about societies which have sought to limit the number of children that couples can have with the result of one gender, and often it's the female gender, being killed before birth, so that the family can legally have another child in the hopes that that child would be a male. And those societies exist in our world today. Guess what? Those societies which have been silently killing off females now find themselves in a crisis, a documented crisis. Why? <laughs> Because both male and females are necessary for the flourishing of any human society. And these nations, these societies are realizing what is clear in this passage of Scripture. Hey, wait a minute. We need women as much as we need men for the flourishing of human society. Church, both men and women are equally important, equally necessary. Both are equally a part of God's original design of the world. And that means that anything we do which would devalue one gender under another gender is not a practice which glorifies the creator of the universe. Which means it's sinful. But then we come to one of the problems of our age. Now, this is not God's problem. It's our problem. It's a problem with how we determine a person's value and worth. In our sinfulness, listen closely to this, in our sinfulness, we confuse equality of essence of being. We 
we confuse equality of essence with equality of function. And what we do is equate equality with saneness. We equate quality, equality with saneness. In other words, we think that in order for men and women to be equal, they must be the same. Not merely in their essence as humans, but in their physical makeup and their function or role in human society. And yet, just as clear as we see that both men and women are equally necessary for human flourishing, we see just as clearly that men and women are not the same. And their differences, which complement one another, are an essential part of God's original design as well. This brings us to the second truth that I want to share with you today. I said two truths today. This brings us to the second truth. God designed human society not only to be built upon the necessity of both male and female, of man and woman, but also to be built upon the complementary distinctions between man and woman. The complementary distinctions between man and woman. We need to talk terminology for just a minute. Make sure we know what what these words mean that we're using. By distinctions, I mean the differences which exist between men and women, those things which distinguish us from one another. That's pretty easy to understand. But now I want you to notice this word that I've chosen to use, this word uh, complementary. It is a word like the word trinity, which is not found in the Bible, but is a very helpful word for understanding and summarizing the teaching of the Bible. So some people might say, well, well, you believe in the Trinity. The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Well, that's true. But it's a word that, that we, have, we have come up with to describe in a summary fashion what God's word teaches. And so it's a good word. The same with this word, complementary. But what does it mean? Well, notice first that it's spelled, I have a little spelling lesson here, um, it's spelled with an E, not with an I. Compliment with an I is an expression of praise. It's when you give somebody a compliment. You say, oh, you look nice today. You dress, dress nice today. Your hair looks good today. Something like that. Uh, you, you compliment somebody. That's compliment with an I. This is compliment with an E. And this means, this word compliment with an E means a thing that completes or brings to, com- to perfection. So think of the word complete when you see this word complementary. So that means, this means that when we speak of complementary distinctions between men and women, we are speaking of the differences between men and women which completes humanity. Remember, not good when it was just a man. Something was missing. It was not, it was not perfect. It wasn't complete. And so God made a woman. Now remember back in chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image. Even back in chapter 1, he goes on to say, the text goes on to say that he made them in his image, male and female, he made them. Humanity is not complete without the differences which exist between male and female. So by complementary distinctions, I mean differences or distinctions which make us good for one another, men and women, make us good for one another because what is lacking in one gender is found in the other. 
What is lacking in one gender is found in the other. So we complement one another. But now we need to ask, what are these differences? Well, obviously, we can't talk about all of them, but let's just start here. Let's start with the fact that there are obvious physical differences between men and women. Obvious physical differences between men and women. Notice that while Adam, in this passage, immediately, think about it, I mean, it's, it's visual here. Animals come, he's looking at the animals, he's naming them, and then God brings this new creation, this woman to him, and he's seeing her. And he immediately recognizes the similarity between him and the woman, unlike the lack of similarity between him and the animals, but he just as quickly notices that this creature is also different from him. Yes, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But then he does not say, she shall be called man, because she is just like me. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm going to call her man because she's just like me. She's human, just like me, so I'm going to call her man. Nope, that's not what he says. He says, she shall be called woman. It's like, wait, here's somebody like me, but I'm going to have to name her a different name. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, if you look at the Hebrew words, thankfully our English words reflect the, the, the um, uh, I don't know the right word here. I need some English majors to help, help me out. But, um, but it, our, our, our English word, man and woman, it reflects the similarity between the Hebrew words for man and woman. The, the Hebrew word here used for man is the word ish, and the word for woman is isha. Just like you see the word men or man in the word for woman. So I, I, there, there's a reason for that. We want to learn something here. He gives woman a similar name to himself, but not the same name. Why is that? Because she is similar to him, but she is not the same as him. She is similar in her humanity, but he looks at her and says, she's different. She's different. She has features which distinguish her from him. And Adam is glad, as we said, when he sees the woman and her differences. Why? Because her differences complement him. Not complement with an I, complement with an E. Where he is lacking, she is not. And where she is lacking, he is not. To use the biblical terminology, she is a helper fit for him. Now, I'm not going to be any more graphic than is necessary. But friends, there are physical differences between men and women which lead to human flourishing, most namely human multiplication. You can read between the lines here. Which is a necessary part of human flourishing. You say, why do you feel the need to say that? Well, I think you know why I feel the need to highlight this. It's because we live in a society which is trying to actualize, I think, and obviously normalize what is physically impossible. That two people of the same gender could have children. When we see and hear people say things like this, well, George and Bob had a baby. We must see through the facade of politically correct terminology and see that that statement not merely as a, see that statement not merely as a physical impossibility, which it is, but as a spiritual subversion of God's design of man and woman. Two men cannot have a baby. Two women cannot have a baby. And pretending they can is a rejection of the holy creator God. 
It's not just physical differences in the realm of reproduction where we see differences between men and women being rejected by our society. Let's look at the sports arena where men masquerading as women are said to be no different than the actual women against whom they are competing. And yet, friends, there's a reason that if you compare the statistics of high school boys and the statistics of women who compete in the Olympics in track and field events and swimming events, the male high school athletes overwhelmingly outperform the top female athletes in the Olympics in the world. The male high school athletes have not hit their prime, where the female Olympic athletes have hit their athletic prime. The male high school athletes have had far less training than the female Olympic athletes have had. So why do the top male high school athletes overwhelmingly outperform the top female Olympic athletes? The reason is very, very simple. God made males and females different. Physically, we are different. And to deny that is to reject God. So far, we've only been talking about physical differences, but here in the text, we see another difference. A difference in function. A difference in function. The woman is called a helper fit for the man. A helper fit for the man. The man is not called a helper fit for the woman. Two times the woman is called a helper fit for the man. God designed the woman to help the man, which means, and we'll see some evidence of this in just a second, which means that the man is to lead the way in fulfilling God's will, and the woman is to help the man in this endeavor. She is to come alongside the man in the role of helper. Now, I know those words that I just said, and all I'm saying is God's word, are fighting words in our society. Those are fighting words. People will be ready to throw down. They'll be ready to fight over the, those words there. How dare I say that the man should be the leader and the woman the helper? According to our society, I should be ashamed of myself. I should apologize. But I'm not ashamed to say that because I'm simply standing firm on God's word. And the word of God clearly spells out the reality that men and women are created equal with different functions, roles. Our society says that your value is determined by your role, your function, what you can do. That's why I said we have this problem in how we define and determine a person's value and worth. And it's our problem, it's not God's problem. Our society says your value is determined by your role, but God says your value as a person is determined not by what you do, but by who you are, which is directly tied to whose you are. Both men and women are image bearers of God, so in that sense, every human being, both male and female, have equal value, equal worth in the eyes of God. We all belong to him as his creation. And then on another level, every Christian man and Christian woman 
is equal in God's eyes. If we believe in Jesus for salvation, we are equally children of God, as Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not doing away with those distinctions. The context of that verse reveals that Paul is specifically talking about our status as Christians. All who have received salvation are equally children of God. And yet the same God, here's where we have to understand this. We have to align our thinking with God's word. The same God who has created us equal in essence, that is as humans in his image, and given those who believe in Jesus an equal salvation at the very same time, that same God has created men and women to carry out different roles or different functions. And so those two are not at odds with one another. They go together and exist together at the same time, equal in essence but different in function. Now we come back to that word that I've chosen to use, complementary. This understanding of God's creation of men and women is known as complementarianism. Complementarianism, I know that's a big word. This is what we believe as a church. We hold to complementarian beliefs. That is that God created men and women both equal and with differences which complement one another and are to be lived out in day-to-day life according to Scripture. What's the opposite of this belief of complementarianism. Well, it's something that's called, I'm going to give you another big word, egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. Those who hold this position believe that equality between men and women means sameness in their role or in their function. In other words, in the name of equality, they disregard God's word when it comes to the differences and the roles God has given men and women in Scripture. Now, our church Our denomination of churches holds to complementarianism, that men and women are equal in their essence and value and at the same time have different roles according to their gender as explained in God's word. We see these different roles in the Bible really beginning right here in chapter 2 and chapter 3. God made the man to lead the woman and the woman to help the man. We see this in the fact, again, that only the woman is called helper. We see this in the fact that the man was made first. We're going to talk more about that next week. We see it in the fact that in verse 16, God gave the one command to the man before the woman was made, and yet in chapter 3, the woman is expected to obey the command, which means that God expected the man to teach the woman the rule that he had given and to lead her away from temptation and into holiness. And this responsibility of leadership being given to the man is further seen in the fact that when they do sin, even though Eve sinned first in chapter 3, God goes to Adam first and holds him responsible first. And if we read further into chapter 3, we see Adam, remember what we said about naming the animals? We see Adam at the end of chapter 3 naming Eve. Not just woman, but the name Eve, which is mother of all living. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 3. But Adam is the one who names Eve, Eve, which is a sign of leadership, of authority. From the beginning, God gave man and woman different complementary roles, which when fulfilled, lead to the flourishing of human society. Because remember, there's only life in the garden in chapter 2. Everything in chapter 2 is good, it's very good, and leads to life. What about the rest of God's word? Does God intend for this to be the way humanity operates for all time? Or is it just a unique phenomenon 
unique to the Garden of Eden, but that changes with the passage of time and the changes in culture. But what we see in God's Word is that God intends for this to be the pattern for all humans in all places at all times. In other words, the rest of Scripture falls right in line with the complementarianism we see in Genesis chapter 2. As we study through the rest of Scripture, we see that even though sin has resulted in a breakdown and a confusion of these roles, God still intends for his original design of men leading women and women helping men to be upheld by his people. Especially we see this in Scripture in the arenas of the home and in the arena of the gathering of God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see only men serving in the office of priests and God holding men primarily responsible for the leadership role in the home. And then we go on to the New Testament. We see the same things. We see that Jesus chose only men to serve as apostles who would go on to serve as the first leaders of the church. And then we see God's instructions for the church very clearly reserve the teaching and ruling office in the church of elder, pastor, Those words are interchangeable for only men. It's just very clear in the New Testament. Speaking about the church, Paul wrote to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, the context of that passage, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, is the church, is the gathering of the church. And that verse is then followed by the qualifications for elders in the church, qualifications for pastors, which clearly restricts the office of elder to qualified men. And in the home, the New Testament places the primary responsibility in the home upon the woman, I mean, excuse me, upon the man for leadership and then the woman as helper. Of marriage, God's word says this, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And then of parenting, God's word says this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In no way does that mean that the Mother doesn't have a role to play. It just means that God is placing the primary responsibility for the raising of the children and the instruction to bring them up and the instruction of the Lord upon the shoulders of the Father. That's just a quick sampling. And we're going to talk more about this next week. But I want you to see that God intends for Christian homes and churches to be modeled after his original design for humanity. And it is a design which gives life and leads to flourishing. And church, by God's grace, despite our sin nature, we can pursue God's original design. This is the good news. We can, by God's grace. Jesus came and died for our sin, which includes our rejection of his design for man and woman. Jesus died to save us from that sin. He came to take away sin, Scripture says. Scripture says that we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come, which means God has created men and women. And for those who have been born again, he has redeemed men and women in such a way that we can and we should strive to live our lives according to God's original design. Now, our society says that that is oppressive toward women. But my response, based on God's word, is this. No, it's not. It is never oppressive to do what God designed you to do. It's actually freedom. It's actually freeing when we do what God has designed us to do. What is oppressive is telling men to do what God created women to do and telling women that they should do what God created men to do. That is bondage. Plus, if we think the woman's role of helper is somehow lacking in value, 
we are forgetting that almost every other time this exact word in the Hebrew for helper is used in the Bible, you know who it's used to describe? God. God. Almost every other time this word helper is used in the Bible, it's talking about God being our helper. So I believe when God designed the woman to be a helper fit for the man, he was uniquely designing the woman to reflect a certain characteristic of God himself, which she would uniquely be able to reflect and which would complement his design of man and lead to human flourishing. So women, women, I believe you have a unique privilege of reflecting this helping aspect of who God is. And that this is a part of you reflecting the image of God. And so don't reject it in the name of feminism or whatever label our society gives. Embrace it in the name of righteousness for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. And the same is true for men. Men, do not reject your role of godly servant leadership. Not in the name of feminism, not in the name of laziness or whatever else would keep us from it. Instead, men, embrace it in the name of righteousness for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. Now, I'm going to stop for today. But we're not finished with this passage. It would be good to preach it all at one time, but I'm going to take my daughter's advice and say, that's enough for today, Daddy. And I agree, I agree. But I want you to keep what we've learned today in your minds throughout this week. And when we come back next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up right where we're leaving off today. Just remember as we close, we need, we need both men and women. And we need men to be men. And we need women to be women. We need the complementary distinctions between men and women. It's all a part of God's original design. Since we've sinned against God and rejected his original design, we don't only need men to be men and women to be women. We need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. Through Jesus alone, his death and resurrection, can we be forgiven of our failure to live up and to and live out God's original design. And through Jesus alone as Christians, can we pursue God's original design for man and woman. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's a lot to take in um, today. But Father, your word is full of truth. It's heavy with truth. And it is so very relevant for our lives. And so, God, I just simply pray and ask you first that if there's anyone here today who has not been forgiven of their sin because they have yet to trust in Jesus Christ, God, today I pray that they would turn to Jesus who died for their sins and they would repent and they would trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then, Father, for all of us who have received this equal salvation that we are children in your sight now, because of what Jesus has done, Father, would you help us to align our thinking and our speaking and our living, our actions, with what your word says about how you designed us, male and female. Father, we thank you for your good design. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.